Good morning, everybody. My name is Steve Weber, and I'm an elder here. We're going to have God's reading this morning. We're going to start with Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 to 20. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me to lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so that I might know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this is the nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And now turn to John chapter 1. And we're going to, I am going to read verses 14 to 18. If my phone gets me to the right spot. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of this fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father and has made him known. Let's pray. Dear Father, I would pray that each and every one of us would have that same prayer as Moses, that you might, we might look for your presence in life in each and every moment of our life to see your presence and know your presence and know that you have made us special because of your love. And we now, as the sermon is preached, I would pray that we would have additional enlightenment and awareness of your presence, that we might know the precepts that you've made and you give to us, that we might better serve you and love you in each and every day of our life. In Jesus' name. Well, uh, I have to apologize first that there's no uh, outline. I had a really hard time outlining this passage and coming up with uh, 
uh, a way to present it, so I didn't get it in before the bulletin was there. But uh, just to give you an idea of where I want to go, uh, we're going to take a look at this passage, uh, John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, and we're going to first talk about uh, where John is going, and then we'll talk about witness, and then more specifically about what's the, the most important, uh, the, the pivotal verse in this passage and how we understand it, what we do from there. So we've already read the passage, so I will just uh, jump in and say this passage has been a, a, a joy for me to wrestle with over the last weeks and months as I've been thinking about it. It's been difficult as well because it's very dense, and uh, I don't know how else to describe it, but I liken it to, um, well, let's, let's just, I, I'll give you a, a, an idea of what I mean. In verse 14, we have a lot of concepts. The, the word become flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son, the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Each one of those things could be unpacked. We could spend months on this verse alone. Then after that, he talks about John the Baptist bearing witness and talking about Jesus being greater than him because he was before him. And it's not very clear how that goes with the verse uh, before it. And then after that, he kind of goes back to the, the fullness of grace and that we have received and grace upon grace. But he doesn't explain what he means by that. And then he talks about Moses and the law, and then grace coming through Jesus. And then he says, by the way, it seems almost like he's saying, by the way, no one has ever seen God. And so I've, as I've thought about this, I thought, if I had turned in, in high school, a, a paragraph like this to my English professor, English teacher, he would say, please take this, can, can you make each one of those sentences a paragraph or two and explain what you mean? Uh, because it's not very clear what you mean. And so I liken it to a poet and a poem, not because it's poetry per se uh, in, in the Gospel of John, but if you think about it, if I were to ask, write a poem about spring, and if you were to say, well, I love spring. Spring is wonderful. Everything turns green again. The weather is nice. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's fun to be outside and to see everything returning to life. That's not, a, that's not poetry. That's explaining what you feel. But if you were to say something like, nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold, well, you'd have to think about that. What does he mean by that? And her early leaves of flower, but only so an hour. What does he mean by that? Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank down to grief. Now it's getting deep. What does he mean by that? So dawn goes down to day, nothing gold can stay. And that, of course, is Robert Frost. And it's eight lines, and each line is very short. And it's about springtime. But you would have to think about it a long time. You could think about it your whole lifetime and, and be constantly impressed by what he was saying. And so that's uh, what John has done here. He's put a lot of thought into this, and he has condensed all of this together, and as you read it, 
kind of have to ask, what does he mean? What does he mean? And the answer is, think about it. Got to think about it and keep thinking about it some more. So then, how do we go about understanding what this uh, passage is teaching? Well, I will sort of walk you through what I did. Hopefully this will be helpful to you and even helpful as you go about reading um, your devotions day by day. Let's just look for some words here that seem important, that maybe are repeated once or twice, and see if we can find what he's trying to say here. So in the very first, uh, well, verse 14, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And we also turn to verse 18, where it says no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so there's this, at the, in the first verse here and the last verse here, there's this idea of seeing God and God being seen in Jesus. And so what other words are repeated? Grace. Grace is repeated probably more than any other word here. Um, verse 14 says he is full of grace and truth. Verse 16 we have all received grace upon grace. Verse 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So this passage is talking about how the logos, the, the word, became flesh and was seen. We have seen him. And then we have received grace. Grace has been uh, made available to us and we have received. So one of my titles, this possible titles for the sermon was, Seeing is Receiving. Um, I thought it was a clever title, and then I wasn't sure that it was the best title, and I didn't, I didn't go with it. Now, I, I guess I could have, um, but I just kept doubting myself. Uh, so you'll notice that in that, there's this, there's this idea of seeing and receiving, but uh, verse 15, we just skipped over, and it doesn't, it doesn't seem to have anything to do uh, with that. And if you're reading from an ESV, or perhaps there are a couple others, you'll notice that that verse is put in parentheses. And so I want to talk about that first, John the Baptist and his witness, uh, and then we'll kind of go back to the, the passage as a whole. Uh, because you have to ask, why is it there? Um, why is he mentioned this here? And as we'll see, verse 14 clearly goes with verse 16. Verse 16 explains verse 14. And so what about verse 15? We do not believe that it's there by accident. We believe that the apostle John, the disciple who's writing this, did so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to talk about that first. First of all, it's not the first time that John the Baptist is, is introduced. In, in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light. Then again in verse 15, John bore witness about him. And then in verse 19, which we'll hear about next week, this is the testimony of John. And so the words witness and testimony are the same in the Greek. And so we can see then by this that John, the, the apostle who wrote this, the writer John, I'm sorry that's confusing, I'm talking about John and John, so I try to, I hope I can make it clear, but the writer John is talking, he's very interested in John the Baptist and his ministry, particularly as a witness. And so why is that? There are some commentators who speak of the Gospel of John as a trial narrative. 
It begins with witness, it ends with witness, and so it contains the witness, the true witness about Jesus Christ, as opposed to the false witnesses who falsely accused him at his crucifixion. So that's one one thing that we can keep in mind here, this uh, a trial narrative, and so witness is very important to the Apostle John because of that. It's also um, important because John the Baptist is seen as a representative of all of the Old Testament witness. And so, well, I'll just turn quickly to John chapter 5. This is John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus is talking to the Jews. He says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Then further down in verse 46, Jesus says, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus sees all of the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, testifying about him. John, the writer, the evangelist, is using this uh, John the Baptist as representative of all of the Old Testament witness. How does he do this? Verse 15 says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this is the one. So all of the Old Testament is is looking forward and saying, this is the one who's going to come. This is, this is the one. We're waiting for the one who has come. And John the Baptist says, this is the one. He is here. This is the one of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And so he has that representative uh, role uh, as well. Another reason why we might think that this is in there is it emphasizes witness, which for us is a good thing to remember because we are called to be Jesus' witnesses. And so it's always uh, a good thing to, to bear in mind and be reminded of. John witnessed, he bore witness about uh, Jesus, and we are to do the same. Another thing um, is after you're told the word became flesh, it might be easy for some, as it has throughout Christian, the history of, of Christian church, to think if the word became something, that means he was something, and now he's something else. And that's um, still something that people believe. But John the Baptist says, this is the one I told you about. The one coming after me is greater than me because he was before me. And so... It helps when John says the word became flesh to say he didn't become something else. He is what he always was. Whatever he was after me, he was before me. He's been that. So he, he brings in this idea of eternally, eternality. Uh, the word is eternal. What he was on earth, he was in heaven since eternity passed. The same thing Jesus says in John chapter 8. Before Abraham was, I am. And so we have in um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 21 says, who is the redeemer of God's elect? And the answer is, the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. So it helps clarify 
that lest we fall into a Christological heresy, a heresy about Jesus. Um, so, those are a few reasons there about why verse 15 might, uh, is there. So we're going to return now to the overall flow of the passage. So I mentioned you know, grace, receiving, uh, seeing, and the connection there. There's another way that we can kind of discern a flow here, and that is looking for clues in the text. And conjunctions is what I'm thinking, conjunctions. So we have two of them. In verse 16 it says, for, from his fullness. And in verse 17, for the law was given. And we know instinctively that conjunctions are important. That's why when we say something and we say it finally, we say no ifs, ands, or buts. Because those ifs, ands, or buts could mean something big, you know, so they're important. So we have the word becoming flesh. And how do we know this? Verse 16 We know this because we have received grace. He was full of grace. We know that because we have received grace upon grace. How do we know that? Verse 17. We know this because the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so all of that taken together, I think, points to uh, this conclusion that we ought to Understand that John wants us to understand this idea of the word becoming flesh and, and his people seeing him and receiving grace is to be understood in terms of something that happened in the Old Testament, specifically with Moses and the law and some difference between then and now. I also think that this might be the most important passage, or verse in this, in this passage because it's the first time in the whole narrative of the first chapter of John that Jesus Christ is identified by name. So if you, if you would later sometime, if you would like, read, read John's gospel and try to make it the first, as if it were the first time you were ever reading this. So it's, it's easy for us, growing up in the church, we know, the, we know what's going on here. It's the gospel about Jesus. Jesus was crucified. He died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. So when we read it, we kind of already know that. But pretend, if you can, that it's the first time reading it. And when it says, in the beginning was the word, ask yourself, who is this word? When it says, in him was life, in who? Um, he came as a witness about the light. Who is the light? The true light. Who is this light? He came to his own. Who came to his own? And the word became flesh. Who is this? And then work your way down to verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the other, there are a couple other gospels that begin right away. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And John does it differently, but beautifully. So, I've already said that I think we should understand this passage in, in, in terms of Moses and uh, something that happened with Moses. And we've already read it, verse, uh, or sorry, chapter 33 of Exodus. We've read part of it. So, I will be flipping to there, uh, Exodus 33. And this connection between the two should be clear based on what we've read already because 
Moses says in verse 18, please show me your glory. Moses is meeting with God. Uh, This takes place at Sinai, Exodus 33, 34, where Moses is receiving the law, which is what John mentioned. The law was given through Moses. And here at this time, Moses says to God, please show me your glory. John says, word became flesh, and we have seen his glory. Then God responds after Moses says, please show me your glory. He responds and says, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And he does this in, verse, in chapter 34, verse 6. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will, know my, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's how God proclaims his name. But there's one phrase in here, particularly abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness that commentators notice translates very well into the phrase, full of grace and truth. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Full of grace and truth. There's another connection. uh, Just one more thing about that. This fullness. Uh, Some commentators associate the fullness with glory itself making the connection between these two passages. If you'll remember in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah has the vision in the temple, the temple is full of God's glory. It's full of smoke. And in this passage, uh, a verse of, of chapter 33 of Exodus, Moses ha- has this tent of meeting. And God meets with him in a cloud of smoke. A cloud of smoke comes down to meet with Moses. And the people would worship at that time. Another connection is in verse 7 of chapter 33. Exodus 33, verse 7. It says, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. Now, um, interestingly, the tent of meeting, when it's translated into the Greek, in the Greek Old Testament, is the tent of witness. And so I think that's another connection between the passages. But this word for tent is skene. All right, now, um, I know, I don't know how you feel about hearing Greek words, but just hear this. Skene, the word for uh, tent, and then in verse uh, John 1.14, it says, The word became flesh and eskene, eskenosen. So, you hear the similarity there. Moses used to pitch his tent. And in John chapter 1, Jesus has pitched his tent. And so, the tent of meeting is 
now has a new meaning in, in Jesus. It's amazing uh, that, that John does it that way. John says that the word has tented among us. So that's how I think, that's the passage in which we are to uh, understand this, this passage. Um, Exodus 33. So how have we received grace upon grace then? Uh, it's, that phrase is a little challenging according to scholars. They don't know exactly what the background is. They don't know if there's a cultural background, if this was a phrase that was uh, commonly spoken and what it would have meant for them. Um, and so you can read other versions of the Bible. The version that Steve uh, read did not say grace upon grace. It said grace in place of grace, I think, is what it said. And so there are different ways you can render this. It's very hard to, to understand exactly what it means. But um, one thing it does mean is a lot of grace. It's a good thing. Whatever it is, it's good for us. And so part of the difficulty could be this understanding of Moses and the law and the grace and Jesus Christ. How are we supposed to understand this? Um, because there's a common misconception that the God of the Old Testament is bad and the God of the New Testament is good. Hopefully not among Christians, uh, although even among some Christians in some denominations, there's this. As a matter of fact, just recently, Andy Stanley was on a, uh, a if you know Andy Stanley, he's a very well-known, popular preacher now, who argues that we ought to, what's his word, divorce, unhitch the Old Testament. Christians should unhitch themselves from the Old Testament uh, because it's not for us. And I think that's wrong because especially in this passage, we're called to understand what has happened in light of what is written in the Old Testament. And so even among uh, certain circles in Christianity, this conception of just foreignness and otherness of the Old Testament and even evilness of the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God who is full of grace. Of course, they overlook the fact that God will return Jesus will return to judge um, when they do that. But it's a common misconception to say that there's this dis disconnect. And this might be a verse that people turn to. But if you notice uh, in verse 17, there is no conjunction, again, between the, first two, the, the two phrases. For the law was given through Moses. There's no but or however Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Nor is there in the Greek. Now, I, I, I noticed that and I thought, well, maybe that means he's not com contrasting them. He's kind of elaborating, building them. He's cook hooking them together. And there was a, a commentator that said, this doesn't mean there is no contrast there. But the commentator went on to point out, what it does mean, or what it helps us see, is that it's not a, not this, but that. Uh, like, that's bad and this is good. It's that that is good and this is better. So if you think about it, did God's people in the Old Testament receive grace? They did, because God rescued them 
from Egypt. He rescued them out of slavery. Before they did anything, they didn't do anything to deserve it. He brings them to Sinai, and then he reveals himself to them in the law, through the law, and speaking his name to his servant Moses, and that is by grace. That is God's grace to his people, revealing himself to them. However, if all we had was the law, what we would ultimately, what would ultimately happen is we would be condemned. So we need something more than that. And it's not an oversight on God's part. God is showing that something more is coming. And so when Jesus Christ comes, the grace upon grace is, not only has God revealed himself through his law, but now he has revealed himself as the one who will fulfill the law in order to save his people. It's not by our merit. It's not by our works. God has done it all. So there is no uh, law bad, um, grace good, Moses bad, and Jesus good. It's whatever was good about that is now a hundred times better or more than a hundred. I don't know how you can quantify it. So anyway, the, the, the point is that what the people were anticipating their salvation, what the law was anticipating, has come. John the Baptist has said, this is the one. God has tented among his people. I, I did forget to say something about that. God, uh, Moses says to God, if I have found favor in your sight, if I have found favor in your sight, the word for favor is the same word for grace. Uh, so they, they found grace but we have even more grace in that we have seen the way that uh, we have seen the word become flesh and that by receiving and believing in him, we can be saved. So we have the grace to be saved. Now, of course, God's people were saved by faith in the Old Testament as well, but we have seen it. And so if I have found favor, show me your ways. And so we have the ultimate assurance that we have found favor in God's eyes because he has come to us and revealed himself to us and revealed, uh, shown us grace. And we have received that grace. So you can ask, how do we know that God loves us? How do we know that we have found favor in his sight? Moses said, how will it be known that we are your people unless you are present with us? If you will not go with us, we will not go out. How will we be able to do what he has called us to do? Moses was called to do something and he did not want to do it unless God was with him. The answer is he is with us. Jesus came, he tented among us. And then he sends us out as his witnesses he says, you will be my witnesses, and lo, I am with you forever. So, the application for me has been uh, difficult to come up with, because as you look at this passage, it is about what has happened, what God has done. Jesus has come, and 
and you can speak for days, years, the rest of your life on the amazingness of the incarnation and the amazing grace that we have received through seeing Christ. But that's what it says. It just, there's no, therefore, go and do this. And so it's tough to come up with an application. So the, the way I did it was going back to Moses in Exodus 33. Moses was called to do something. And he says, I'm not going to do it unless you're with me. And each one of us is called to do something. God has called us to be where we're at. He's called us to be a witness. And it's not easy. And you shouldn't want to do it unless God is with you. Another thing we can do is pray the prayer of Moses. If I have found favor in your eyes, show me your ways. Now, this is why I think this is amazing. Because Moses, if you could take your experience, all of the, your conversion, your life, your maturity as a Christian, if you could take that and then say, you can either have that or you can have what Moses had, what would you choose? Which is better? On one hand, we have seen how God has fulfilled righteousness. But on the other hand, Moses talked to God face to face. Moses led the people of God out of Egypt. He parted the waters. Imagine that. Imagine parting the South River. Imagine being with God in the cloud. Being with God on the top of the mountain with the thunder and lightning that terrified the people below. Imagine receiving the tablets on which God himself inscribed the Ten Commandments. It would be hard for me to say, nah, I'm good. I wouldn't like that. That would be an amazing experience. Yet even Moses, in spite of all of that, feels the need to say, if I have found favor in your sight, I, I, I think we would say, yeah, Moses, you found favor in his sight. But if I have found favor, show me your ways. For what purpose? That I might find favor in your sight. So whatever Moses' relationship was with, with God, and I would say it was amazing, he still felt the need to know God more so that he might know God more. So then we can think about all of the things that we've done, all the amazing things that we've done. Maybe we've led a few people to the Lord, which is amazing. Um, it doesn't make us like Christians that have arrived. We, we're never at a place where we can say, yeah, I go to church, uh, you know, I think about the passages, and I go home, I just do the best I can, and just assume that, I don't think we consciously do this, I think we implicitly assume that, you know, God's good, life's hard, but he's getting us through it, and, and we just do the best we can. But I think we ought to be more conscious, like Moses, of the need for us to see God, for him to show his ways to us, 
that we might find favor in his sight. So I think that's one thing to think about. Another thing I came up with, I just took a a class on the history of philosophy and Christian thought. So we, we, we looked at how philosophy from Plato on has shaped, and it has shaped the world in which we've lived. It's even shaped, because it shapes culture, and Christians find themselves in culture, it shapes us. We are shaped by our culture um, to, a, to an extent. And the more we're aware of that, the better we are to see it and to reject the things that keep us from deepening in our relationship with God. But the last day, Friday, we talked about Albert Camus, French existentialist philosopher who begins one of his books by saying, basically, the, the, the main question that we should be asking ourselves is about suicide. Why don't we do it? There is no point. It's day in, day out of hard life, suffering, and monotony, tedium, it's painful. What's the point? There's no God, according to him, according to the existentialists. We're, we are, to quote one songwriter, stardust, billion-year-old carbon, um, just kind of whirling around. So, yeah, that's a big question then. Why am I doing this? Um, and his, his, his ultimate conclusion is, it's kind of a punishment, a, a, a sick punishment by the forces of nature. And the way we respond is just to say, you think you want to punish me, nature? I'll show you. I'm going to enjoy it and live it up. And I think that that's pretty much uh, what people do when they reject God. I remember seeing George Clooney say something very similar to that when somebody asked him about God. Got one life. Just got to do my best. Well, I guess it's easy if you're George Clooney, maybe easier, and you've got everything that you could want. But that's a big question. What's the point? What's our response to that? The Logos has come. The Word has come. Who is this Logos, this Word? The source of life, the source of light, the source of truth, the truth that the existentialist thinks he or she has found and seeks to find. And he is our source of salvation, source of God's grace, saving us from the futility of our work that is the result of our sin. So we do not live without hope like those around us. So we, again, we're called to be in a world where many people think this. We're called to be witnesses in a world where people have rejected God, have no reason really why they're, why they're here. They just have things that they like to do and they kind of make that the reason without really thinking about it and without really thinking about their need for salvation. That's where we find ourselves. But 
The word has become flesh, dwelt among us. We have received grace upon grace. We have received salvation, and he has sent us out. We are to be his witnesses, and we are not alone. We can do it, not because of us, because he's called us to do what he's called us to do, and he promises to be with us. Let's pray. Eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you thanks and praise for the wonderful word that we have in which we see Christ, the one who has come, and in seeing him we have received grace upon grace. Lord, by your Spirit, cause that truth to be deeply rooted in our hearts and minds and help us to be more conscious of it, to give more thought to this wonderful truth that we may be changed by it, that we, we may be faithful to be the witnesses that you have called us to be, being ever conscious of your presence with us and the assurance of your love in Christ. Father, build up your church and save the lost. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.